On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are talking about a case that has gone in front of the Supreme Court of Canada about whether or not you can make yourself so intoxicated that you no longer know what you're doing, commit a crime, and then can use that as a defense. Right now, it's that's not allowed in Canada. But could that be? That case will be, we're going to talk about it. That case could determine whether or not being drunk, being doped, being drugged, whatever, could get you off the hook in certain circumstances. We're also talking about the NHL season starting this week, Tuesday night. Maple Leafs start on Wednesday. What do we expect from the Leafs? Hmm. What do we expect from the Leafs? We'll talk about it. Stay with us. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. So here is what's going on with the Supreme Court right now. And as I say, this is a truly fascinating case. In, and this is the, the sort of the, the Reader's Digest version. In December of 2015, there was this guy who was in his mother's basement in Peterborough and he ate a bunch of magic mushrooms. Done it before, apparently didn't really cause him any problems. This time, however, they caused him to go goofy, It apparently, so he says. And he ended up calling his mother Satan and his sister the devil. And then he wandered over to his dad's home, which was nearby. And thinking he was doing God's will, so he says, he broke in, uh, grievously wounded his father's partner, and then stabbed his dad as his father was trying to get his son to recognize him. His dad ended up dying. And so an Ontario trial judge found that, well, there was no reason for him to attack his father. They had a good relationship. So this must have been drug-induced and not, this is a quote, not reasonably foreseeable, the psychosis. So he was incapable of knowing what he was doing because of this psychosis that he couldn't have planned for because the magic mushrooms had never affected him before. However, he still was convicted of manslaughter because federal law doesn't allow for you to use as a defense. I took something and it made me not know what I was doing. I was involuntarily an automaton, essentially. So today, this case, could you call as a defense involuntary automaton syndrome? I took something, I didn't know what I was doing afterwards, therefore what I did was not my fault. Can this be used as a defense? I want to bring in Jeffrey Manish, and he is a well-known criminal defense lawyer in the city of Hamilton. We love when he comes on. Uh, Jeffrey, thanks for doing this today. appreciate it. Certainly my, my pleasure, Scott, and that's a very good summary. Well, you know, it, it is, uh, I, back when I was a younger man, I covered courts uh, at a different newspaper and I remember covering a case where someone had consumed so much booze that they said they were a non, they were in a state of non-insane automatism. They just didn't know what they were doing anymore. Of course, the defense was thrown out because we don't allow that in this country, but intoxication can be a defense, correct? If someone else were to do it to you, if someone spiked your drink or if someone drugged you and therefore you didn't know what you were doing, you could use that as a defense, correct? Sure, because it would be said in those circumstances that you didn't voluntarily um, put yourself into that state of intoxication. It was not self-induced, so the section in question in the Appeal of the Supreme Court of Canada wouldn't apply. Right, and the idea then is if you voluntarily drink yourself to a state where you don't, you, know, you black out, or if you voluntarily take drugs and do something, um, yeah, you may not have known what you did, but you're ultimately responsible for your body and you caused yourself to be in that position of not knowing what you were doing. And certainly that's the underlying philosophy or policy behind the section in the criminal code that takes it out as a defense. 
And I think most people would agree with that. I mean, would you agree with me that that would be a widely held view that you should be responsible for yourself if you put yourself there? Yes, I think a lot of people would uh, would think of that. The analysis that the Court of Appeal did in, in the two cases that they heard and the issues to go to the Supreme Court of Canada, though, would require a reasonable, reasonably informed individual to kind of drill down a little bit and say, is it really fair, is it really right? That's, that's the approach that the courts have to do in evaluating the constitutional validity of legislation because everybody has the right to life, liberty, and security of the person and the right not to be deprived thereof except in accordance with the principles of fundamental justice. And those, God, include the presumption of innocence, and those include the concept that you shouldn't really be found guilty of an offense unless you have not only the blameworthy act, but also a blameworthy state of mind. Mm-hmm. And the issue yeah, then we'd have to get into is to say, well, wait a minute, does the, the way in which Parliament has taken this defense out constitute a breach of those rights? Has, have yeah, and we already see. What they've done disproportionate to the objective they meant to cover. Yeah, we, we already see in times when someone is convicted, but the, but they're ex- not excused, but the, the defense is that insanity is the defense. And oftentimes people really get upset and say, look, this person did something, but why are we not convicting them still? We question this. I, I can't imagine what the public response is if we now say, yeah, you made yourself insane or, or made yourself not know Therefore, you should be able to get off that. that I think there would be serious blowback. Jeffrey, there's, there's a bunch of areas where this case becomes really tricky. One of them, of course, is there are many cases, including first-degree murder and others, many crimes, where there must be intent. You you have to be able to have formed intent, and if you are so blotto that you can't even think where you are, how do you form intent? Well, and in fact, let's go back to criminal law principles number uh, numbers one, two, and three. Okay, number one, for a criminal offense, you have to have the unlawful act. Number two, you have to have the necessary unlawful mental state, the Latin phrase, the mens rea. There are categories of offenses that have what's called a specific intent. That's more than just intending to do the act. There's almost a purpose behind it. If you don't have that specific intent, you may have a lesser offense that only involves what's called the general intent. You mean to do the act. So to stay with murder for a moment then, Scott, if you do an act intentionally and that unlawfully causes the death of somebody, that certainly is going to be manslaughter at least. If you did so meaning to kill the person or meaning to cause them a level of bodily harm that was so grievous that there was a likelihood they'd die and you were reckless whether or not death resulted, that's that extra element, the specific intent for murder. Now, it has happened over the course of years, and this is apart from the specific issue we're dealing with, Significant levels of intoxication may neutralize that level of the specific intent. So that's how murder can get knocked down to manslaughter with respect to a significant level of intoxication. The issue in this case, though, is what about the general intent? What about doing the act that doesn't involve that extra intent? Well, what the court had to look at is to say this. Our guy, Mr. Chan, had ingested some magic mushrooms in the past. He didn't find anything, he didn't experience anything close to the reaction that he did this time. This time the reaction was way more severe than usual. So he had no way of anticipating that this was going to be the reaction. Sure, he voluntarily consumed the magic mushrooms, but there was no connection whatsoever to him stabbing his father. So the court had to take a look at, well, is it enough to say, well, we have enough for our intent 
that if you intended to put yourself into that self-induced state of intoxication, good enough for the unlawful act, the, the necessary intent for manslaughter. The court said, no, you can't substitute that element like that. That if the guy has acted in a way that's involuntary, if you convict him, that's contrary to the principles of fundamental justice, contrary to presumption of innocence. If the guy didn't have the minimum mens rea, that he didn't mean to, he didn't have the intent to even cause the harm generally to his dad, he doesn't have the mens rea, that's contrary to fundamental justice. And we don't get into substituting saying it's enough if you meant to be intoxicated, because being intoxicated doesn't get you close to the mental state for the offenses charged. So that's where that challenge to the legislation mm. has come in. Because in 1995, this law was put on the books for the criminal code to say, no, you don't get the benefit of that defense if it's self-induced intoxication. And the argument the Court of Appeal accepted was that's unconstitutional. That's what's going to the Supreme Court of Canada. But couldn't you, if this was going to be allowed, couldn't you then make the case, for example, that I was too drunk to be convicted of drunk driving? No, because what you've got there, Scott, is if you've got almost an inevitability that there's going to be an element of the offense of drunk driving, there's our substituted element. Yeah, well, you didn't mean to drive drunk, but you meant to get yourself so drunk you were in a state that basically almost inevitably connects you to the act of driving. You aren't going to get the benefit of that defense. So you wouldn't succeed with that one based on the Court of Appeals analysis. But with this one, as we see, and the other case they had to consider as well, Scott, a guy attempted to commit suicide by consuming a heavy dose of Wellbutrin. Again, it put him into this non-mental disorder automatism. He stabbed his mom, mother a number of times. You can't connect the, I want to kill myself taking Wellbutrin to any kind of mental state that inevitably is going to get into the realm of stabbing your mother. So what the court had to do is look at the proportionality with Parliament did, and they said, no, this isn't really connected to the objective of protecting people, and this is way disproportionate. There are other things they could have done that they didn't do, and so how can you support this law? Because if it's found to infringe somebody's rights, the Crown would have to say, well, it's, a, it, it's, it's justified in a free and democratic society. The court says, no, this is disproportionate. They didn't co consider other alternatives. They didn't impair the person's rights as the minimum levels possible. So that's what the Supreme Court of Canada is now going to have to wrestle with. And we, we, even apart from any of that, one could say, well, Parliament passed the law, so how can the courts intervene? We know that sometimes Parliament passes laws that are considered by the courts to be unconstitutional. It's part of the function, as we talked before, of the role of the judiciary as opposed to legislature. They have to be properly inferential, but if Parliament has overstepped its boundaries and gone too far, the courts have the Supreme Court of Canada's rights. They know this is unconstitutional. We already said that there could be something if someone spiked your drink or did something else that was not in your control, that clearly would not be the same thing here. Same thing if you were to take, say, prescription medication that you you took it, you decided to take it, it was your hand that put it in your mouth, but if you had an adverse reaction that caused you to have some sort of psychotic situation, that would be a defense? I, I would say yes, it certainly would, because you had uh, essentially... Your action of taking prescription medication, there isn't even really anything that would be characterized as close to being unlawful on that. That's the kind of reasonable care that and unexpected. could take. Yeah, and unexpected. You didn't expect the result to be what happened that then led to whatever. So that one, that, yeah, I can see, and I think most people would say, sure, if I take a prescription medication that leads me into a situation that I could have no expectation of, and I think people would be... And I would say, Scott, with respect to A, the person who took an excessive amount of Wellbutrin, or even B, our guy who takes the magic mushrooms. We really come down to the concept of fundamental justice. 
Who do we want to punish, and who do we want to ensure doesn't escape liability? Who do we want to hold accountable, and what are the necessary elements we need to have to get there? And at what stage do we say, no, it would be unfair to deprive somebody of a defense that goes to the core issue of a voluntary act with a basic mental state? These two guys say, look, I acted in an involuntary kind of way. I didn't intend what, what to do what it was that I did. And historically, I mean, the concept of automatism has been considered to be around for, in the, the criminal law for a long time. Why? An act that somebody may, experience, may, may do at a time when the mind isn't connected with the behavior, and it's not because of any mental disorder, that can give the basis for reasonable doubt and a finding of acquittal. Maybe, I don't know, maybe I'm a prude, but to me, there somehow seems to be a difference of the recreational part of this, that there was no need for him to be ingesting this stuff. And therefore, whether the expectation that the mushrooms would create a response or not is vastly different from someone who took prescription medication because they needed to take it. Uh, somehow, okay, again, I, maybe that's not an issue, but that seems... If somebody takes the mushrooms then essentially we're going to hold him liable for anything that he does thereafter, even if it was involuntary and unintentional. Why? Because it's the cost of doing business. You want to take the mushrooms. It doesn't matter that you have every reason to believe you can take them. There won't be any issue. Too bad for you. We aren't going to give you the benefit of any defense at all for whatever you might do thereafter. Why? Because you didn't have to take the mushrooms. That's the kind of issue that the Supreme Court has to wrestle with. Because mm. the, the concern is that's the kind of effect this legislation would have. And so we go back to our charter principles and say, is that fair? Is that something we, that is a proportionate response? Or are there other ways the legislation could be drafted to not pick up those guys? Jeffrey, we have 30 seconds. Very quickly, if the Supreme Court was to decide that extreme self-intoxication could be a defense because it's pushed you past the point of knowing what you're doing, will there not be a million appeals filed immediately by everybody who was intoxicated at certain, some level when they were committing their crime, trying to now get out of their conviction? No, I don't, I don't, think, I don't think so at all. In fact, since Davio was considered a sign this is going to be rare, over the many years since that time, it's rare. Scott, from the standpoint of the level of intoxication that you'd need to succeed in a defense like this, it is truly extreme. So no, I don't think it would affect that many cases at all. I think it would be a very tough defense to run because you'd have to show a judge, essentially almost in the balance of probabilities, that this intoxication deprived you of that intent or the voluntary act. So no. And in terms of appeals, no, no. You have people who have been convicted in the past. If they haven't filed a notice of appeal, they aren't in the system. It's too late for them. So no, this isn't the floodgates are open by this one, Scott. This is more mm -hmm. a matter of what's fair and what's, what's, necess what's fair from the interest of the individual, what's necessary from the standpoint of uh, the criminal code and the justice system. It's a fascinating case. Uh, Jeffrey Manishin, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. Always a pleasure, Scott. It's great chatting with you. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. So as I say, the NHL season opens tonight, and it does seem like it's not possible, A, because, boy, it just feels like we just had the Stanley Cup finals, did we not? I mean, it doesn't seem that long ago that Tampa Bay was hoisting the cup, and also that the Leafs were being eliminated to be honest. But nonetheless, uh, it also, again, just seems like the weather isn't ready, but that's not the case. It is hockey season and here to talk for a few minutes about said season. Sean Fitzgerald, senior national writer with The Athletic. All right, Sean, uh, let's get to hockey here and I'm going to put you on the spot with no forewarning and no warm-up time. 
what is your one big prediction about something that is going to happen this NHL season? It can be anything. What is your one surefire guaranteed will happen prediction from Sean Fitzgerald? Somebody will be upset by something the Toronto Maple Leafs do. <laughs> okay, let's try another one because that's all. That's a gimme. That's that's not even fair because yes, that's going to happen. What's another surefire guaranteed prediction from Sean Fitzgerald? Uh, people will spend a lot of time talking about the Toronto Maple Leafs. No, I, I mean it's interesting. Like this is kind of a period of transition in a lot of ways for the NHL in a lot of aspects of its business and. In an interesting way, you know, it might not impact a lot of the way we consume it as Canadians. This is a year where, you know, in the U.S., um, the NHL and the way it's broadcast to fans is going to be changed in a, in a really uh, obvious, in-your-face kind of way that, you know, TNT, Turner Broadcasting and ESPN are now sort of picking up the mantle as broadcasters and they're, they're going to try some new gimmicks and new gadgets, maybe not the glowing puck of the old Fox era of yore, but... You know, Wayne Gretzky is going to be on a panel. Mark Messier is going to be talking, um, you know, on ESPN as we speak. Uh, Sports Center has a live interview with a player going through a warm-up, like a live pregame warm-up. So there's going to be a bunch of things that might filter up here through social media. Um, there's going to be changes up here, too, in the way that we consume the game. Um, some new voices, some voices that we're familiar are no longer here. Jim Houston has retired uh, you know, Chris Cuthbert's going to be the voice that a lot of people who are listening to this conversation are going to be hearing because he's going to continue to do a lot of Leaf games and, you know, will almost certainly become the vain voice of, you know, hockey night in Canada as they go into big games. And, and on the ice, I mean, I mean, let's not kid around. Like, you know, the Toronto Police are going to be a preoccupation again this year. And, you know, the tension is going to only ratchet up as the season progresses because, Nobody's excited for the Leafs to begin the season this year. Nobody's, nobody's buzzing about the Leafs. I think the Toronto Star had that article today. Nobody's buzzing about the Leafs to get going. No, it's, it's all cynicism. dread because you wonder, yep. well, you know, even if they have a great regular season, are they going to still trip on their own faces heading into the playoffs? Exactly. So, yeah, I, I I agree with you. We've talked about that with other people on the show. I think that Austin Matthews, I mean, he's going to miss a few games, but still he could score 65 goals and Mitch Marner could get 140 points. And there are an awful lot of Leaf fans who will say, I don't care. What are you going to do when the playoffs are show? I'll be excited for those point totals and those things when you win a few playoff rounds. Then retroactively, I can go back and feel good about what you did. But I don't care what you do in the regular season until you win playoff series. I really, I, I'm with you. I think that is the overriding feeling among most Leaf fans. And I don't know that I can think of another season quite like that, where there's almost apathy towards the regular season. I mean, certainly the expectation is that this team will make the playoffs. So um, it's what happens beyond there. And I can't think of another time when that was the case. You think back to, you know, certainly during some of the grim years, the Randy Carlisle years, it was, well, can they just make the playoffs? And you think about even before that, when Pat Quinn was the coach in the early 2000s, it's, well, you know, they're very good in the regular season, but there's always something fun to look forward to. Alexander McGillney, trade deadline acquisitions and then see how far they can push in the playoffs. You know, the nineties, the Doug Gilmore years, it was nobody ever really looked at the the regular season as just sort of a piece of business before you get down to the playoffs. I mean, obviously the regular season is always just a piece of business and the playoffs is the carnival. Um, but nobody ever discounted that whole piece of business to see what happens next. That is where the Leafs are. And should they fail this year, 
um, you know, the, the, the fallout could be pretty substantial because um, the team didn't make any really, um, I'd say, monumental changes over the offseason. They didn't, they didn't adjust that core. That core group of what we're talking about um, is still in place. I mean, pieces, important pieces have moved on. I mean, Zach Hyman's no longer here. Um, but the core is still here. The core of that disappointment from last season and the season Well, and before, I think the reason... Sean, I think the reason is because, quite honestly, they look at that series with Montreal and they say, look, Tavares went out 15 minutes into the series. They lost Jake Muzzin, who was arguably their best playoff-style defenseman or certainly in the conversation. Two huge pieces that went down, and if those guys don't go out, maybe they beat Montreal, and look where Montreal went. And so there, I, I really believe there is a firm belief within that organization that they are way better than they've shown, but you're right. This is not any longer a case where you can believe that it it has to happen or else. And I think this, and, and you jump in on this one, but I think when I say, or else, I don't even just mean a coach or Kyle Dubas. I mean, I'm not convinced that Brendan Shanahan right to the very top is not in danger if they were to poop out in the first round again. Yeah. I mean, you look at, yes. I mean, John Tavares, you look at, um, certainly Jake Muzzin, but you know, every team suffered injuries in the playoffs. That's the whole point. That's, that's why they make the commercials, right? It's, it's, it is unfortunately, I mean, for players long-term health, but in, in the short term, it is that battle of attrition. But I, I think, you know, that notwithstanding, they look at, you know, fans are, are likely to look at the young core and say, well, Hey, what did Mitch Marner do in that playoff series? And you have to go pretty deep down the box score to find anything he did. Um, he's still here um, in that attitude. Um, toward a star, like a bona fide star in the regular season and having that outlook at them heading into another year um, because they have been so chronically underperforming during the playoffs. I think that's that's sort of where that is. I mean, yes, tremendous regular season um, challenge in the playoffs, but unfortunately, you know, history judges you by more what you do in the playoffs than anything you do in the regular season. I mean, do you think that for people who haven't seen it, uh, while this was all going on last year, they were the subject of an Amazon Prime five-part behind-the-scenes documentary, kind of like they used to do before the outdoor games on uh, on HBO. I watched it. I mean, it was, it was entertaining, I suppose. Um, but do you think that helps the Leafs because it humanizes them a little and shows, especially like Jack Campbell, is crying after losing game seven. Do you think it humanizes them or do you think that just puts more pressure on them because they're the Leafs and they're the team that everyone wanted to do the behind the scenes thing on and they better win? Yeah, I mean, that was a business decision on both parties. I mean, that was supposed to be the year last year where, I mean, things just lined up so well for at least not for, let's not forget, like they were in the Canadian division and that heading into the playoffs, um, that Canadian division was seen as the easiest, least bumpy path to the NHL, you know, to the NHL semifinals as the Leafs might ever see. They didn't have to go through any U.S. team. It was supposed to be, remember, the Leafs and the Oilers in the semifinal, in the Canadian final to get to the NHL semifinal. That was the path. Um, so, you know, drawing that up, that was a business decision between Maple Leaf Sports and Entertainment and Amazon. It was supposed to be this great crowning achievement of here come the Leafs back to the NHL final at some point. Didn't turn out that way. The humanizing aspect, sure. For the hardcore fans who watch it, sure. But I think, you know, the general sense of apathy 
um, and, and even among the, the hardcore fans, the lingering sense of anger and disappointment of just, hmm. just the Leafs plumbing the new depths of finding ways to stomp on the hearts of their long-serving yeah, fans. Just to um, torture their fans. I think that's going to be easily forgotten, no matter how many yeah. shows are about them. And here, and you said something a moment ago, Sean, and, you know, we're talking about the regular season and nobody cares unless, and there is a big unless there. Maybe people really pay attention to the regular season if they do what they did in 93, or was it 94 when they came out to start the season with 10 straight wins? Maybe that gets people interested, but more likely... If something goes wrong in this regular season, oh man, oh uh, th- this is this is going to be this is going to be something. And here's the thing, uh, Sean, I the Leafs are a pretty good team. No one's arguing against that. But they're playing in the Atlantic Division. You've got Florida Panthers who many say are the Stanley Cup favorites. You've got Tampa who are the Stanley Cup champions two times over. You've got Montreal that was in the finals. You've got Boston that Toronto never seems to be able to beat in any important time. Uh, you've got Detroit that stinks. You got Buffalo that stinks, but in Ottawa, that's getting better and always causes the Leafs problems. And only four of those are getting in. I like, I don't want to be the sayer of doom and name. It's not a guarantee. The Leafs are in the playoffs. It's very likely, but it's not a guarantee. I think with a couple of those teams you mentioned, I mean, you know, Buffalo fields an American hockey league roster. It'll be a triumph. Yep. Um, I mean, Ottawa still can't get a Kachuk under contract. Like, you know, those teams are not powerhouses. Um, yeah, and there are absolutely ascendant teams. And Tampa, I'm sure, will find new ways to circumvent the cap this year that will surprise and dazzle <laughs> everybody um, in order to maintain their competitive balance, imbalance, I should say. Um, and, and, yeah, Montreal obviously has some roster challenges right now. Um, you know, maybe they overperformed last spring. Um, but, yeah, I think it would be... Something monumental would have to rise up for the Leafs not to make the playoffs. Maybe Agreed. it's the goaltending issue. Maybe maybe they made the wrong bet in, in net and they don't really have the depth for the consistency that they need, um, especially if you know one of them gets injured. But yeah, I mean, it's, this team is going to be judged on what happens after the regular season. Um, if they, I don't even know if, if winning two rounds would be enough. If they don't get to a no. third round, um, you know, there, there could be some monumental ramifications. Uh, Agreed. And, and and as I say, I, I can't fathom how the Leafs don't make the playoffs, but there are five teams in that division that are all pretty good. Tampa, Florida, Boston, Toronto, Montreal. Uh, and one of those is not going to make the playoffs. And so somebody is going to be on the outside at the end of the season looking and going, how did we not make it? We were surefire to be in there. I, I don't believe that's going to be the Leafs, but as I say, whoever that is, is going to be shocked at the end. So, you know, we'll see. All right, let's move away from the Leafs just for a couple of minutes because there are, believe it or not, there are other teams in the NHL. I know it's hard to fathom. Gravity demands that you stay by the Leafs, but yes. (laughs) Yeah, well, we're probably not going to venture too far. Somehow it'll bring us back, but uh, the Seattle Kraken are in and maybe the best prediction I think that we could have because they're an expansion team, maybe the best prediction we could have is they won't replicate what the Vegas Golden Knights did in their first year in the NHL going to the Stanley Cup Finals. First try out of the blocks. But my goodness, is there a general manager who, other than maybe Kyle Dubas, who has more pressure on him than what's going on in Seattle? Because now that's almost the expectation. If you're in a new market, look what Vegas did. Why can't you do this? I think that expectation has been tamped down. I think, you know, the narrative was controlled pretty well heading into heading into that expansion draft that, you know, managers have learned from the mistakes of Vegas that 
um, you know, making the wheels and deals to, you know, uh, allow Vegas to stock up the way they did. It didn't happen this time. Um, you know, they didn't have the access to the same same sort of pool, um, that same sort of um, uncertainty that sort of captivated the market heading into that Vegas. In retrospect, I'm saying this, of course, because at the time I thought Vegas was going to be hot garbage as well. Um, but no, I, I don't think that the same systems were in place. And I think that, you know, Seattle rightly, you know, didn't play up to that Vegas comparison on the ice. I think Seattle's frankly done some really innovative, progressive things off the ice that could, you know, help change the league for the better in a lot of other ways as well, in terms of accessibility, inclusivity, and representation. I'm just doing a search right now uh, of the name Kachuk, just to make sure that nothing has happened. I mean, here in, um, you're a Hamilton guy, so you know this market as well as anybody. Maybe people may not know you're a Hamilton guy. Sean is a Hamilton guy. Um, we we do here in this city find small bits of pleasure in the suffering of Ottawa Senators fans since they stole the team that was supposed to be the Hamilton team. So anytime terrible things happen to the Ottawa Senators, there is some satisfaction for us to watch them suffer. But looking at them with their arguably best player and they can't seem to make a deal and everyone else is signing their best young players this is this is quite a, is this not kind of a huge statement on ownership there and the fans are going to be looking at that going if we can't sign Brady Kachuk what are we doing here I think that that pony left the stable a long time ago about ownership I mean Ottawa was a fan base where you know they crowdfunded anti-eugenomic billboards if I'm not mistaken, all that, not all that long ago. I think fan displeasure with ownership is something that's been almost fully entrenched at this point. But, but yeah, I mean, the, you know, not being able to lock up your young stars, um, especially when you're, you know, paying at least lip service to, to rebuilding through youth um, is, is not a look that I think would want to, you know, you'd want to wear for any franchise, especially one that, you know, has been going through the, the tumult that's been going on in Ottawa about, you know, the new arena, the not new arena, the, the moving downtown, the not moving downtown, the, you know, getting rid of this star player, that star player, not being able to retain this star player, going to war with a beloved former captain, like all of these things add up to just, you know, as much of a headache as the Leafs have proven in the spring, um, the Senators have been a headache almost year round for diehard fans in Ottawa. Except they always, this is the beauty of sports, no matter how much you hate the owner and what he's done in the past, if you do the thing that they love now, people are willing to kind of, oh, well, that's in the past. This is a new era. This is a new era of Senators hockey and ownership. And that's what a lot of people were thinking was going to happen, that they've got this young team with all these draft picks and they're now at the bottom beginning their build. And this is when we're going to be really serious and start to put the money out there and do it. And then if you don't put the money out for this guy, regardless of what the reasoning is my goodness it just it screams it seems that no nothing's changed i think it's a lot harder to rebuild some of this than than fans are giving credit for i mean take a look at buffalo as well and what ownership's done down there i mean jack eichel the situation of whether he can or cannot get the procedure he wants to repair his injury um you know stories of uh, paring down the workforce of severing long-standing connections within the community and also of not being very good at hockey. Um, I, I think these are all things that accumulate and they become very, very difficult to shake off. I always love the Sean Fitzgerald dry, droll comments about, oh yeah, not very good at hockey either, which is true about the Buffalo Sabres. I mean, Sean, I'm not sure, but I think if you or I went out, one of us might make the team. 
and it probably wouldn't not, be me. I'm but. not sure you or I haven't made the team. I haven't checked the roster yet this morning. That could be true. They, they, that is just, that is just such a bad, bad team right now. And, and you know, the, the beauty of the Sabres. And when I say beauty, my tongue is planted firmly in my cheek. You know, they're probably going to finish dead last by a thousand points and still somehow lose the draft lottery and fit, pick fourth and not end up getting a good guy. And it just, it never works for them. It's like Ottawa in a sense. It just, it just doesn't seem to happen. Yeah, I mean, yeah, they, they lost out on McDavid. They lost out on Mike Babcock. Um, you know, and, and then they have ownership that I don't know exactly what the long-term plan is there. But, I mean, we talk about the challenges of um, public relations in Ottawa. It's there almost as strong in Buffalo. Um, and the real heartbreak there is that that's a great fan base. Like that is, sure it is. That is sure it the is. strongest, almost inarguably the strongest fan base for hockey in all of the United States. I mean, certainly based on television ratings, um, even when the Sabres aren't in it, which unfortunately for most of our generation, they haven't been in it. Um, you know, they still draw incredibly well for television. So, I mean, that <laughs> yeah. is actually, you know, one of the great sad stories of the current NHL landscape that, you know, such a great hockey town, such a great town, frankly, um, doesn't have the competitive team it deserves. Here's how bad it is. Their first round draft pick from this year decided he would rather go back to university than to make 925,000 minimum US. I mean, Sean, honestly, if someone says to you, as much as you love the athletic, you can work at the athletic and stay where you are, or you can move somewhere else and make a million three a year. Chances are you're going, all right, I think I'll take the million three or whatever that translates into a Canadian. Nope. They not even willing to do that. So all right, uh, before we let you go, you mentioned something off the top. I have just a chance of winning the Stanley Cup this year with the Athletic, as anybody in Buffalo does. <laughs> I, I think that's true. There's the big prediction right there. The Athletic will win the Stanley Cup before the Buffalo Sabres this year. Uh, before I let you go, you mentioned something off the top. I, I, I just thought I should ask you. The, glow puck, the glowing puck from Fox, yes, ESPN is back. Do you think that in 2021, with the way things have changed in technology and broadcasting, would the Fox glowing puck work now if they brought it back or would it still be as reviled as it was then i think it wouldn't have to be as ostentatious i mean if you remember like the slot shot it was like somebody was putting a giant purple highlighter across your screen right <laughs> i think i think now like they they are implanting or at least developing you know arfid chips that can go in to help track movement it'll eventually help people bet and become degenerate gamblers for all of these things in sports but <laughs> I think that if you, you know, if you're able to do it and maybe with a little bit of subtlety involved, um, especially, I mean, if we're talking about pucks that, you know, if you think about the camera angles and you have, you know, the red line camera that's following it and it's, you know, a rim pass around the near boards and you can't see it, I can see how potentially, you know, a tracking device, you know, might help viewers. Um, but again, it has to be done with a certain degree of subtlety because, um, those giant marker slashes across the screen. I mean, they're, they're wonderful to look at on YouTube now, but if you had to watch 82 regular season games of that, I could see how you know, remote control in your hand would get a good workout. Tron hockey. Tron hockey is what it was. Uh, Sean Fitzgerald, senior writer for The Athletic. Always appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this, Sean. 
Thanks for having me, Scott. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.